Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, good morning. Won't you share with a friend or two? Good morning. Good morning to you, you. Good morning, good morning to you. Good morning, Bibliophile Tay. I hope I'm saying that right. Hope I'm dividing that up correctly. Good morning and welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I am your host this morning, Shante Charles. I hope that you've been having a great and wonderful day. I am on the East Coast and um, spent a little part of yesterday evening just praying for those um, who have been in the line of Hurricane Ian. From my understanding, it is making another landfall. So we do want to continue to pray for those who are in the path of the storm. It is also a little bit further up east. It is also starting to be what we call fall or sweater weather. So that's why you see me have this uh, sort of light sweater on. Uh, It's in the upper mid, well, low 50s today. Uh, So it is starting to get cool here. So if you are in a part of the world that is warm and sunny and you have the opportunity to take advantage of that, please take advantage of it. I know we have been taking advantage of our summer warmth and now we're getting into the cooler part. So we are back in two books, Black Theology and Black Power by James H. Cone and Carved in Ebony by Jasmine L. Holmes. We are also broadcasting on our podcast, which is um, Daring Dialogues as well. You can find us on Spotify, Google Play, um, Anchor, um, are some of the places that it is located. Also on Sundays, we have a Sunday Dialogue that you can also find on the podcast. We're there every Sunday, um, breaking down scripture and the word of God. We're in a series right now um, that my husband is leading. So take a look over there on the podcast and catch up with us, or you can join us on our um, Facebook page, Life Nation, which is our ministry arm of what we do. Before we get into the reading, though, I did want to um, address... Some things that I'm seeing online, because this is Theology Thursday, Thinking Thursday, where we cover not only just religious topics, but we cover spirituality, we cover in, um, philosophical thought and those things as well. So there is, uh, there was a post a friend of mine put up about a well-known evangelist, um, mainly well-known, I would say, in the black church, um, but she is... I would say she's probably world known in some aspects in Christendom, um, Prophetess Juanita Bynum. Now, I am not a follower of Prophetess Bynum. I am not a, I don't know what they call her followers, but I am not that. Um, But I am concerned because um, of sort of the rhetoric that I see surrounding her 
excuse me, for one moment. One moment. All right. And the reason why I say that I am concerned is because people sometimes say things in a very joking manner, but not everybody has critical thinking skills. <laughs> so um, the post that I saw that someone, they screenshotted her post and they kind of made a joke about her being a witch. And this is concerning to me because oftentimes something like that that is said even in jest can do damage to a person's reputation so even though it was funny you know what kind of they did it in jest or whatever i had to go back and say but stuff like this is how we got to things like the salem witch trials right um which by the way none of those women were actual witches if you go and look at the history of it um <clears throat> so we have to be careful about how we are portraying other people especially if we are to we to ourselves are spiritual leaders we wouldn't want somebody to jest about certain things about our ministry or our life right we want people to um honor and respect what it is that we do in the world um and so I did, I responded to the post and I said, Hey, you know, this may be funny. You know, some people may look at it and, and, and laugh, but I actually did go to the original post because it was a screenshot of her post. So you couldn't really see all of what was in front of her, right? Some people were saying, Oh, she's making some kind of brew or whatever. But if you go to the original post. She's actually, um, there's like a shofar in front of her. There's like a prayer handkerchief in front of her. She's lighting a candle. And then on the other side of her is, um, it looks to be like a Jewish setting, maybe for Rosh Hashanah, right? And we know that some African-Americans do, um, especially Christians, do kind of celebrate some of the, um, the Jewish holidays, right? They get into the celebration part of it. So as I was looking at what was actually in the pictures, I was like, let's not do that to each other, people. Like, let's let's not insinuate things based on an image without further looking into stuff. The other reason why I said that is I want to um, go back to the Salem Witch Trials real quick. This is an older book, but if you are interested in studying, um, let's see, religious persecution, if you're interested in studying women, women's history within the context of religion and spirituality, the devil in the shape of a woman, pick up a copy, okay? Witchcraft in Colonial New England. And she actually is um, diving into the women who were accused and how many of them were accused because their independence was a threat. Because their voice was a threat, because they stood up for themselves in a very patriarchal society. 
because they had economic and sometimes land and property power in their society. So the women that were brought to trial, it wasn't just like non, it was, it was intentional who they brought to trial and murdered so that they could gain possession over what these women had in the society. It was a power grab. It was a land grab. And it was done under the guise of these women are evil and witches. And it was done under the guise of religious justice. Okay. So I want you to think about that. If no one's ever told you that, if you didn't know that, go and do a little bit more study. All right. This is one of the reasons why I'm concerned about some of the things that have been said. So that's just my 25 cents on that for today. We're going to hop right into Black Theology and Black Power with James H. Cohn. And we are picking up with the subject. Do, 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 do. Where are we? <clears throat> Christian love. Christian love and black power. Christian love and black power. To suggest that black power is doing God's work in history by righting the wrongs done against his people will, of course, provoke the response that black power is a contradiction of Christian love. Critics will say, even if black power is not hate, but as you say, self-determination by whatever means necessary, violence if need be, how can this be reconciled with the life and message of Jesus? Is not this a radical denial of his demand to love in which the power of God is expressed in weakness and humiliation? These difficult questions should not be evaded since many black power advocates shun Christianity and the language of love. Nor do we adequately meet these questions by suggesting that Christianity with its emphasis on love is rejected because it is the oppressor's religion, though this is undoubtedly true. And even more specifically, critics will focus and force us with the question, is it not true that black power emerged because blacks became disenchanted with Martin Luther King's emphasis on Jesus's demand to love the enemy? Martin King says one black power advocate was trying to get us to love the white folks before we learn to love ourselves. And that ain't no good. And another defines the problem in this manner. Too much love, too much love. Nothing kills a Negro like too much love. While most black power advocates do not prescribe hatred, only a small few, it must be admitted would suggest love as the black man's appropriate response to white oppression. Most seem to feel like Malcolm X. Quote, it's not possible to love a man whose chief purpose in life is to humiliate you and still be what is considered a normal human being. Therefore, instead of loving or hating the white man, it is best to ignore him. The white man no longer exists, writes one advocate. He is not to be lived with and he is not to be destroyed. He is simply to be ignored. Even a sympathetic admirer like Vincent Harding wonders whether black power is actually participating in the same game of dehumanization, which it ascribes to white power. He pointedly asked the question, 
What shall be said of a love that is willed towards some men and not toward others? Is this goal in any way related to the deadly disease that has afflicted so much of American life for so many generations? I certainly have no desire to make Christians out of those who see no relationship between their understanding of truth and Jesus Christ. It is not my thesis that all black power advocates are Christians or even wish to be so. Nor is it my purpose to twist their language or to make an alien interpretation of it. My concern is rather to show that the goal and message of black power and articulated by many of its advocates is consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Indeed, I've even suggested that if Christ is present among the oppressed, as he promised, he must be working through the activity of black power. This alone is my thesis. How then is it possible to reconcile black power and its emphasis on emancipation at all costs with Christ's message of love? In an attempt to answer that question, we must remember that it is most difficult to make first century New Testament language relevant to contemporary world come of age. Jesus did not give us a blueprint for identifying God and his work or for relevant human involvement in the world, but this is the never ending task of theology and the church. The real temptation is to identify our own interests with God's and thus say that he is active in those activities which best serve our own purposes. Karl Barth pointed out this danger in a convincing way in his Romans commentary, but we must speak of God and his work if we intend to join him. Our chief difficulty in coping with the relationship between black power and Christian love arises from the theological failure to interpret the New Testament message of salvation in such a way that it will have meaning for oppressed black people in America. We still use, for the most part, traditional religious language, which really was created for a different age and to a large degree created for the Western white society. The New Testament message of God's love to man is still embedded in thought forms totally alien to blacks whose life experiences are unique to themselves. The message is presented to blacks as if they shared the same white cultural tradition. We still talk of salvation in white terms, love with a Western perspective, and thus never ask the question, what are the theological implications of God's love for the black man in America? Therefore, when we are confronted with black people who have a new sense of themselves, who are alien to the Western definition of the black man, and to some degree alien to Western views of humanity, our language seems to fail us as an attempt is made to fit him in. I am not suggesting that the New Testament language in, and its theological interpretation in the history of Western Christianity are no longer useful. Rather, I am saying that there is a real need for a radical approach which takes the suffering of black people seriously. Without this new way of doing theology from the perspective of black enslavement, there will always be this barrier between black power and Christian love. This can be illustrated in the New Testament understanding of God's love for man and man's love for God and neighbor. According to the New Testament, man's love for God and his neighbor is grounded in God's love for man, which most theologians designate as agape. God's agape to man is spontaneous and creative, the starting point of the God-man relationship. It is spontaneous in, the, in that there is no worth in man, 
from God's perspective, which accounts for God's love. The sole reason for God's love is found in his character, not in ours. As Nigren says, just by the fact that God's love seeks sinners who do not deserve it and can lay no claim to it, manifests most clearly its spontaneous and unmotivated nature. This is the part of God's love that you cannot earn. God's love is creative because God does not love that which is already worthy of love, but on the contrary, that which in itself has no worth, acquires worth just by becoming God's object of love. While all men are worthless apart from God's love, since God's love is bestowed upon us all, all are worthy simply because God loves them. Herein lies the religious foundation for the equality of men. To suggest that some are worthy and some are not, or that some are more equal than others, would mean that man has worth independent of God, or that God's love is more creative in some than in others. As Nigren says, agape does not recognize values, it creates it. Agape loves imparts value by loving. The man who is loved by God has no value in himself. What gives him value is precisely the fact that God loves him. God's love is the initiator of the God-man fellowship. In that, there is no way from man to God independent of agape. Because of God's act of love to man, man can now have fellowship with him. This is certainly demonstrated in God's election of Israel and its becoming man in Jesus Christ. In fact, everything that Christians mean by God's love is expressed in the Christ event. John 3.16, Romans 5 and 8. It is the man, Jesus, who reveals God's love by what he says, does, and is. Like God's righteousness, his love is expressed in terms of his activity to and for man which is the very basis of man's response to God and to his neighbor. This activity of divine agape love cannot be easily separated from God's righteousness. Indeed, they must be held tightly together. Love prevents righteousness from being legalistic, and righteousness keeps love from being sentimental. Both express God's desire to be for man when man will not be for himself. Love means that God rights the wrongs of humanity because they are inconsistent with his purpose for man. Righteousness means that God cannot turn his back on evil, that he cannot pretend that wrong is right. Love means that he acts for man's own best interest, that man's welfare is God's primary concern, and so does righteousness. This leads us to the biblical understanding of man's love for God and for his neighbor. Jesus summed up man's obligation to God and neighbor in the form of a double commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. So for those who are looking for how can I obey the commandments, <laughs> on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets.
great summary. Also want to point out, he said, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. So yes, my emotions are supposed to be involved in my love for God. My mind, my intellect is supposed to be involved in my love for God. I do not lose my mind. (laughs) I engage my mind into knowing who God is. For a man to love God means that the Christ event has gripped him so that he behaves as if Christ is at the core of his being. Man's love for God means that because of God's prior activity of love through Christ, he is now willing to become his servant. Willing to let his movement, existence in the world, be determined by his relation to God. It means regarding God as the ground of one's whole existence, depending upon him without reserve, leaving all care and final responsibility to him, living out of his hand, his will, his voice. Like righteousness, it means joining God in his activity on behalf of the oppressed. This leads us to the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. To love the neighbor means that we seek to meet his needs. It means being prepared to confront the neighbor as thou and doing what is necessary because he is who he is, a creature of God. There is really no need to ask or even discuss the question, who is the neighbor? To accept God's act in Christ at the very core of one's existence means a radical identification with all men. No one is excluded. Every man necessarily becomes one's neighbor. His place in existence becomes ours, including the non-Christian. It is this radical identification with the neighbor which prevents God's grace from becoming cheap and the mistaking of worship for faith. To accept God's grace means that because God has acted for all, all men are free, free to respond creatively to that act. And it becomes the act of Christian love to proclaim the good news of freedom by actively fighting against all those powers which hold men captive, whether Christian or not. With this interpretation in view, we now ask, what does this mean to the black man in America today? What does it mean to speak of God's love to man? Man's response to God, his love of neighbor. For God to love the black man means that God has made him someone. The black man does not need to hate himself because he is not white, and he should not feel a need to become like others. His blackness, which society despises, is a special creation of God himself. He has worth because God imparts value to him through being. It means that God has bestowed on him a new image of himself so that he can now become what he in fact is. Through God's love, the black man is given the power to become, the power to make others recognize him, because God is a God of power, of majesty, and of might. To love man means that he wills that the black man reflect in the immediacies of his life, his power, his majesty, and his might. For the black man to respond to God's love and faith means that he accepts as truth 
the new image of himself revealed in Jesus Christ. He does not become someone else. He becomes himself through the power of God. He now knows that the definition of himself defined by white society is inconsistent with the image of himself disclosed in Christ. In a world which has taught black people to hate themselves and still does, <laughs> he wrote this in 1968. The new black man does not transcend blackness, but he accepts his blackness, loves it as a gift of the creator. For he knows that until he accepts himself as a being of God in all of his physical blackness, he can love neither God nor neighbor. This may be what one black power advocate meant when he said, until blacks develop themselves, they can do nothing for humanity. And another who said, black power does not teach hatred, it teaches love. But it teaches us that love, like charity, must begin at home. That it must begin with ourselves, our beautiful black selves. When St. Paul speaks of being a new creature in Christ, the redeemed black man takes that literally. He glorifies blackness, not as a means of glorifying self in the egotistical sense, but merely as an acceptance of the black self as a creation of God. But what does it mean for the black man to love the neighbor, especially the white neighbor? To love the white man means that the black man confronts him without any intentions of giving ground by becoming an it or a thing. Though the white man is accustomed to, to addressing black people as an it or a thing or a piece of property, in the new black man, he meets a thou, a human. The black man must, if he is not to lose sight of his identity in Christ, be prepared for conflict, for a radical confrontation. As one black man put it, profound love can only exist between two equals. The new black man refuses to assume the it role or the dehumanizing role, which some white people expect, but addresses other white men as equals. This is when the conflict arises. And here we are in 2022, and that's still a conflict. I can tell you from my own experiences, People do, do, those who have racialized tendencies, those who have hidden prejudices and biases do not like to be addressed as equals. I've met a lot of Christian racists in the past 20 years. They will speak to you. But speaking to you is not the same thing as believing that you are their equal. So yes, conflict will arise. Therefore, the new black man refuses to speak of love without justice and power. Love without the power to guarantee justice in human relations is meaningless. Indeed, there is no place in Christian theology for sentimental love, love without risk or cost. Love demands all the whole of one's being. Thus, for the black man to believe the word of God about his love revealed in Christ, he must be prepared to meet head on the sentimental Christian love of whites, which would make him a non-person. 
The insistence that love, power, and justice are inseparable seems to be one of Paul Tillich's contributions to contemporary theology, offsetting the dangerous emphasis on powerlessness or weakness in the face of inhumanity. Love and power, he writes, are often contrasted in such a way that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. Powerless love and loveless power are contrasted, but such an understanding is error and confusion. Therefore, he rejects the traditional view with its emphasis on emotion as an inadequate representation of love. Since love is the reunion of the estranged, and since power is the possibility of self-affirmation in spite of internal and external negation, both love and power must be interrelated. Power becomes the possibility of the reunion of self with self and with the other. Without power, love would cease to be love because reunion would be impossible and being would become non-being. That is why Tillich says, love is the foundation, not the negation of power. And that is why black power is an indispensable element in black-white relations. If we're going to speak from a Christian perspective, Taking his clue from Luther, Tillich speaks to the essence of black power and the uniqueness of Christianity when he says, it is the strange work of love to destroy what is against love. Love conflicts with compulsory power only when it prevents the aim of love, namely the reunion of the separated. It seems that whites forget about the necessary interrelatedness of love, justice, and power when they encounter black people. Love becomes only emotional and sentimental. This sentimental, condescending love accounts for the desire to help by relieving the physical pains of the sufferings of black people so they can satisfy their own religious piety and keep the poor powerless. But the new blacks, redeemed in Christ, must refuse this kind of help and demand that black people be confronted as persons. They must say to white people, that authentic love is not help, but giving, not giving Christmas baskets, but working for political, social, and economic justice, which will always mean a redistribution of power. It is a kind of power which enables black people to fight their own battles and thus keep their dignity. Powerlessness breeds a race of beggars. Most of us would call that uh, what he's referring to is really a sort of paternalism that we often see with some of our white allies calling themselves trying to help black people. It essentially says that black people are in such a childlike state that they need that they need to be helped or assisted or parented over. And hopefully people are moving away from that or realizing when paternalism is happening. We are moving into the next reading, which is a continuation of Sarah Griffith Stanley's story, The Almost Forgotten Spitfire. This is part two. The American Missionary Association was a Protestant abolitionist group 
that devoted itself to the religious education of free people. They played an integral part in the founding of several historically black colleges that survive to this day. Fisk, Howard, Tougaloo, and others. They also spent, sent many Northern teachers, both black and white, to the South in the wake of the Civil War to teach the newly emancipated. Yeah. It was to this mission that Sarah was drawn in 1864. At the age of 25, she wrote her very first letter to the American Missionary Association requesting a position as a teacher in their ranks. She wrote, this is the way walkie in it speaks a voice within my heart. And I know that no thought of suffering and privation, nor even death should deter me from making every effort possible for the moral and intellectual salvation of these ignorant and degraded people, children of a beneficent father and heirs of the kingdom of heaven. And I feel how much greater my own spiritual advancement will be for while laboring for them, while living a life of daily toil, self-sacrifice and denial, I can dwell nearer to God and my savior and become constantly by divine aid, richer in faith, richer in love, richer in all the graces of the Holy Spirit. Sarah was first sent to Norfolk, Virginia with an integrated teaching unit. There she began the work of educating newly freed children. Sarah would travel to several cities, uh, Sarah would travel to several cities as a teacher for the AMA, but it was in Virginia where her reputation hit a snag. Unaccustomed to a black woman who saw herself as completely the equal of every white teacher she encountered. Did we not just talk about that? <laughs> Seeing yourself as an equal. Both white and black teachers bristled at her attitude. Sarah found herself much Sarah herself found much to bristle about. Her biggest complaint about her station in Virginia was the racism of the fellow teachers. Wow. <laughs> Here it is, twenty twenty two, and I can definitely attest to that having taught in Virginia. After witnessing an incident of racism, Sarah, of course, did not hold her tongue. She wrote to the powers that be protesting the offender and making the case that he did great harm to the cause that AMA claimed to stand for. Her letter held all of the characteristically pointed verbiage, her tightly controlled passion and her passion for the truth of the gospel. Here's what she said. As I have understood the religion of Christ, the brotherhood of man, is its fundamental and elementary constituent. Whatsoever ye would, God has created of one blood. Let us love one another. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. He that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? The propagandist then of a religion which denies the first principle of the gospel, the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of Christ, not only disseminating his views to those who legitimately belong to his own household, but promoting the moral, mental, and spiritual welfare of the freed people is irrefragably laboring for the advancement of the kingdom of Satan. As that martyr saint of Harper's Ferry remarked of the Southern clergyman who visited him while imprisoned, he needs to learn the ABCs of Christianity. What is she in essence saying? 
Don't get over here trying to teach free black people and you're not loving them as a brother and you're not treating them humanely and you don't see them as your equal. (sighs) A love letter to Sarah G. Stanley. These were the very first words I ever read by Sarah Griffith Stanley that a racist teacher was through his racism laboring for the advancement of the kingdom of Satan. And that he needed to go back and learn the ABCs of Christianity. With those two phrases, she captured my heart like no other figure in this book has done. Incredible women though they are. In Sarah, I see whispers of myself. Born to privilege, given every educational advantage her parents could afford her. Raised with a rigorous religious education. Raised in the church. Working as a teacher. Living at home until her mid-20s. I'm likely the descendant of a slave owner with a lighter skinned family tree that barely looks related to my unambiguous brown skin. There's just enough in Sarah's story to strike a familiar chord in me and just enough in Sarah's story to inspire awe about the dynamo that this woman truly was. She traded a privileged Northern existence to walk into the mind of the reconstructed South. She stood toe-to-toe with racists in the midst of teachers who were supposedly there to help the newly freed black people they taught. In a time when some teachers wrote more favorably about lighter-skinned students than darker-skinned ones, when some teachers refused to board with their black co-laborers, Sarah spoke up. Not only did she speak up, she spoke up as a black woman in spite of the fact that she could have passed for a white woman, no doubt garnering more safety, more freedom, less suspicion, less judgment, she chose to fully acknowledge the heritage God had given her. And not only did Sarah acknowledge it, she was proud of it. I stood in my living room crying with her letters in my hands because Sarah Griffith Stanley offered me at 30 what I wish I had at 10, 12, or 14, growing up in my predominantly white surroundings. The gumption to be vocally Christian, vocally black, and vocally proud of the identity that the Lord had chosen for me. The ability not to be afraid of being the most intelligent woman in the room, the most outspoken woman in the room, the only black woman in the room. The hue of my skin and the hue of Sarah Stanley's skin could not be more different. But the similarity of our heritage was something she never denied. Let that sink in. Sarah was born in the 1830s. Slavery was still rampant across the American South, and her family lived as freedmen in North Carolina. Rather than blend into newborn white society, her father founded a school specifically for the education of black children. Now, I'm going to probably have to do a little bit more research on her and ask my family in that area if they knew of her. Yeah. Same, same, similar. That town is very close to where my family is. And my great grandmother definitely could have passed for white, but she chose not to. I think I'm going to have to do some more research. Her mother associated with black women who were far from ethically, ethnically ambiguous. Sarah herself attended one of the few colleges of the time that admitted black women and owned her heritage proudly. Not only that, but she fought on behalf of those less privileged than she. And not only that, but she went to the South in the wake of the Civil War 
and dared hold her head high as a woman of color in racism's midst. How could one not be in love with the story of this dynamic woman? How could one not stop to meditate on how much her decisions cost her? How have we forgotten her name? Can we get a story? Can we get can we get a film on Sarah Griffith Stanley for the educators? I'm just saying. The end of Sarah's story. Sarah worked for the American Missionary Association for a number of years. She went on to marry a white man, causing a bit of stir, and left the AMA shortly after. The details of her life are spotty after that. Now Sarah Woodward, she lost a child in infancy and became a widow. She spent some time at Lucy Craft Laney School in Georgia, aiding another dynamic woman in her life's mission to educate the black masses. Laney's story is also in this work. And yet, at the time of her death in 1918, at the age of 82, she was receiving a government pension of $25. The place of her death and burial is unknown, and to historians' knowledge, she left behind no family to call her own. The end of her story weighs heavy on my heart, as well as the fact that so few have known it. Had I not run across her name in a random line of text and typed it into Google, I would not know her story myself to, to, to tell it to you. More than any other figure in these pages, Sarah Griffith Stanley Woodward taught me that in order to tell the stories of so many black women in history, we must become dogged researchers. We must comb footnotes, obtain rare books, speak to the experts, and above all, pray for favor from the storytelling God we serve. As historian Diana Ramey Berry notes, we pay homage to and draw on an abundant historiography about black women. In addition to scouring archives for precious primary source material, whenever possible, we also make use of the growing repositories of historical and archival records online and we often quote documentary interviews and cite video footage featuring black women. Our hope is that this approach will more easily assist any readers who want to find out more about many of the figures and subjects in the book. Even with these efforts, there are times the historical record fails to adequately document black women's experiences. Sometimes there are hardly any records at all. As historians, we often find ourselves in the difficult position of relying on archival records not penned by black women, but instead chronicled by those who play central roles in obscuring and silencing their legacies. Which is why <laughs> I am on a mission right now to document both my grandmother's lives and um, my great-grandmother who I actually have quite a bit of information on now because two of her daughters, my grandmother's sisters, are still alive. So they can tell me about my great-grandmother. They can tell me about my great-grandfather. So I have been, um, as she said, doing the work, doing the work. If you have um, aunts and uncles, especially that are over the age of 60, over the age of 70, over the age of 80. They're still in their right mind. They have clear faculty. They have clarity of thought. They can remember history. A lot of them will say, I don't want you to write nothing down, but I need you to say, okay, I'm not going to write it down, but I'm going to audio record. 
I've got to get this history so we don't have another generation of us trying to search through obscure stuff about our own history and our own legacy. We have a responsibility to record, to archive, to gather, to detail our own history. Why? Because nobody is going to tell it but us. Nobody is going to tell it as accurately as we would. Nobody is going to tell it in the spice, in the flavor in which you would. So we can't keep waiting on other people to do our work for us when it comes to our family history and legacy. Yes, grandmas. So I have stories from my grandmothers about their lives that they would sit down and tell me. I have that. But now I'm getting more information from their children. And then also with my great grandmother, I'm now getting information about her life and my great grandfather's life from their two daughters that are still living. So it is super important. Um, You know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, I have time or, you know, I'll go see grandma at, at such and such time. And then you let it fly past. And then you let it fly past again. And then you say, I'm going to go see her for a holiday. And then you let the holiday pass. And then next thing you know, grandma is no longer here. And there is a proverb that says, when an elder dies, and, and this proverb has stuck with me because I used to be a school librarian and a librarian uh, research assistant. When an elder dies, a library burns down. Why? Because all of that history that you had access to is gone with that elder. Unless they wrote it down, unless they wrote a book. Um, Sometimes, you know, you have images, right? My great aunt brought out these huge stacks of photo albums of relatives that I never even knew because I wasn't born when they were living. Um, my, my, uh, grandmother had brothers that I didn't even know she had until she passed away because she never talked about them. She would always talk about her sisters, but in talking with her sisters, come to find out all of the history about the brothers and the images of the brothers and seeing my great uncles for the first time in their youth, when they were children, when they were serving in the military, like all of that extended history that I didn't know about. She had seven brothers, I think. Yeah. 12 children altogether. My great grandparents had 12 children, seven sons, five daughters. All the sons died early. The sisters lived well, you know, into their 60s and 70s and the two youngest are still living my grandmother lived to 99 she was trying to make it to 100 she lived to 99 so i'm saying this because i am living it and i'm in the midst of it and um there's so much rich history within our own family line right Sometimes we look out at the stories that are being told in the media, in film, in our society, and we're like, wow, this is amazing, right? 
But there are so many more amazing stories in your own family line that you just don't know about. Like my mind is being blown (laughs) by the amount of just amazing stories in my own family line. So I'm trying to do whatever I can that's in my power to make sure that I archive and record and write down for the next generation so they will know that these people lived, they loved, they existed, they did amazing and incredible things and that it begins to add to the canon of black history and black life in America. The writer says this and I'm going to um close. I think I've got about one and a half more pages. We'll finish this chapter. This is the fate of many a historical woman, but it is especially true of black American women, particularly for lay people searching out their stories. Without access to an academic library, I couldn't secure photocopies of Oberlin historians extensive research on these women. Because of COVID, the American Missionary Association's archives weren't as accessible as they normally are. And as a lay person, not an academic, I would have, wouldn't have even known to lament the lack of primary sources if one name in one paragraph of one obscure book hadn't mentioned her name. I wouldn't have even known there was enough information to write about her if my friend hadn't used her knowledge as a PhD candidate to point me down the right paths and encourage me to keep digging. Sarah was the first woman to send me burrowing down the rabbit hole of research, scouring for clues, digging for treasure until I struck the gold of her actual letters, a living testament to the fact that she existed. And not only did she exist, but hundreds of thousands of faceless, nameless women exist with stories worth knowing, with stories worth telling. I wish I could tell them all, but for now I've narrowed it down to 10 who have stayed with me long after I closed the book on their words. The ending of Sarah Griffith Stanley's story is still at the beginning of ours. This woman's voice roared out of the silence of the historical account, and I heard her loud and clear. And now you get to hear her and to learn from her. You get to learn that shining example of educated black womanhood, and you get to teach her story to as many others as you choose. You get to carry on her legacy with rigorous education, undaunted Christian conviction, and unapologetic defense and protection of the marginalized. Sarah was not perfect. There are places in her letters that still hold some of the prejudice of the day. There is an unspecified incident that resulted in her being disciplined by AMA and repenting of wrongdoing. The reports of her haughty attitude may not have been driven merely by jealousy or misunderstandings, The woman was flawed in ways that we might be able to read between the lines and in ways that we never will. And yet, those flaws do not keep hers from being a story I am grateful I get to tell. If I could bottle up the feeling of finally reading her letters after months of digging, searching, and praying, I would have a scratch and sniff sticker on this page. But hopefully my words have conveyed just a hint of the privilege it is to know her story. She died in obscurity but she did not die without a legacy. Even my telling of her story on these pages is part of that legacy. Your reading her story is part of that legacy. The lives of all the educated black women who came after her are part of that legacy, even mine. When I was a young girl, I remember telling my mom that I just wanted to be remembered, 
the William Shakespeare, not the Billy Spears, who wrote really excellent community theater plays and died in obscurity. The older I've gotten, though, the more I've realized that fame is not the only measure of our impact. The average person on the street has no idea who Sarah G. Stanley was, and yet her impact changed the lives of students she came into contact with. Hundreds of years later, it changed my life. Her faithfulness, so broadly unseen, resonates with this girl who used to want all the credit. Her impact was not broad, but it was deep. And that's the kind of impact I want. The Instagram followers, Twitter count, Facebook likes, those are not nearly as important as the lives I'm touching day to day. For me, my children, for Sarah, her students, that's the test of true faithfulness. I had this legacy in mind as I sat in the passenger seat on a road trip with my husband the other day. We were daydreaming about the future, and I said, I think I really like the name Sarah. Sarah? He was shocked because both I told him my almost Sarah story and because I'm a committed boy mom. But we love to name our children after the people who inspire us. And with inspiration as the litmus test, Sarah is one of the most beautiful names I've ever heard. All right. Her next one that we'll be reading starting next week is Nanny Helen Burroughs. You might be familiar with her, but that's who we'll be reading on next week. I want to thank you for your time and attention today. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues, and I've been your host, Shante Charles. I hope I've said something empowering, impactful, and inspiring for you. Make sure that you go out. Be a light in the world. Do what you can to record your own family history and legacy. And don't forget to record your own. Take care and have a great rest of the week.